Good morning, saints. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, we will focus uh, our attention this morning on verses 15 through 21. However, we will begin reading in verse 1. That said, I do, as I always do, invite you to hear and receive the inspired and authoritative word of the triune God. He is the only true God, and this is his word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain shall you bring forth children. Your desire desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we come to you with confidence through the person of your beloved Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, by your Spirit, and we give you thanks. We thank you for who you are and what you do, and we thank you that you are a holy, righteous God who takes sin seriously. Therefore, we must take sin seriously. We would ask that you would open our eyes and that you would work in our hearts in such a way that we are conformed more into the image of Christ as a result of the teaching and application of this text. Give us a glimpse of your glory that we might be encouraged and challenged and convicted, but more than anything, equipped by your grace to pursue you with more, with more fervency. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The year was 2014. The month was March. The place was Orlando, Florida. And the setting was the Ligonier National Conference. It was at that time, in that place, in that setting, when a panel of pastors and theologians, including Stephen Nichols, Derek Thomas, Vody Bauckham, R.C. Sproul, and R.C. Sproul Jr. were asked this question. Since God is slow to anger and patient, then why, when man first sinned, was his wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? After a few seconds pause, it was R.C. Sproul who answered, Time out, he said. Didn't we just have this question a second ago? That God's punishment for Adam was so severe? This creature from the dirt defied the everlasting holy God. God had said, the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And instead of dying that day, he lived another day and was clothed in his nakedness by pure grace. And had the consequences of a curse applied for quite some time, but the worst curse would come upon the one who seduced him, whose head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. And the punishment was too severe? Sproul then exclaimed, What's wrong with you people? The audience began to burst into an awkward laughter. But Dr. Sproul was not having it. With righteous indignation, he continued, I'm serious. This is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is, and we don't know who we are. To which the audience erupted in applause. Dr. Sproul concluded, The question is why wasn't it infinitely more severe? If we have any understanding of our sin and any understanding of who God is, that's the question, isn't it? Beloved, what we see in our text this morning, or perhaps what we don't see, indicates how much of and what of sin we understand, both generally and personally. Furthermore, it indicates how much and what of and how we understand God, both generally and personally. 
The last three sermons that have been preached from this pulpit, pulpit out of Genesis 3 have focused on temptation and sin. In Genesis 3, verses 1 through 5, Pastor Jeff helped us to better understand Satan and his schemes. Then in verses 6 through 8, Jeff again told us that we are responsible for our sins and we are accountable to God for our sins. And then last week, Pastor Kevin preached verses 9 through 14. And get this, I wasn't here. I look up the sermon online and I see that this dear pastor brother entitled his sermon, Sin. Sin. That's the title of the sermon. That's clear. You know what you're going to be talking about that day, right? And Kevin spoke of sin's reality and sin's character and sin's consequence. The previous sermons preached in Genesis 3 really magnified, and rightfully so, sin. And this morning, we continue in the study of God's response to sin. And I am wondering how you and I will respond to God's response. On one hand, we could respond by thinking that God is too harsh, that God is overly demanding, that he should maybe lighten up a little bit. On the other hand, we could respond by standing in awe of God's grace amidst sin. And I want to invite you to respond by doing the latter. And this brings us to the main idea of this morning's sermon. Genesis chapter 3, verses 15 through 21, reveals God's grace amidst sin in at least five ways so that you might turn to him amidst your sin. Early in Genesis 3, we saw Adam and Eve try to hide from the Lord God amidst their sin. But our passage displays that God is overwhelmingly gracious amidst sin, such that you and I would be fools not to turn to him in faith so that we might forsake our sin and pursue him all by his grace and for his glory. Again, five ways that God's grace is revealed in our text. First, we're going to see God's gracious promise in verse 15. Then we're going to see God's gracious instruction in verse 16. Then God, God's gracious curse in verses 17 through 19. His gracious fulfillment in verse 20. And lastly, God's gracious clothing in verse 21. Let's begin with God's gracious promise in chapter 3, verse 15. Once again, the text reads... I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here we pick up in the middle of God's curse upon the serpent. And as you may know, the ancient serpent is explicitly identified in Revelation chapter 12 verse 9 as the one who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And a common historic view is that Satan, a spiritual being, entered into and influenced a real physical serpent to tempt Adam and Eve. And I think that's right. And as a result of Satan's sin through the serpent, it seems to me that there are, are both physical and spiritual consequences of the, of the curse that follows. Physically, in verse 14, 
We are told that the serpent is cursed above all livestock and that it shall slither or crawl on its belly and eat dust. Now here we are in verse 15. And verse 15 begins to reveal the spiritual ramifications of Satan's sin, again, in at least three ways. First, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. It's important for us to note that God is the primary actor here. God has the prerogative to both bless and curse. In this case, as God rightly curses, he instigates the animosity between the serpent and the woman. God was and remains to be the one who sovereignly works out his purposes and his plans through the sinful acts of others. And that is exactly what he is doing here in our passage. Now this term translated enmity speaks of a hostile disposition. It speaks of a war-like atmosphere. It's rarely used in the Old Testament. It's used four other times. In Numbers 35, the term is used twice in the context of a hostility that leads to murder. In Ezekiel 25 and 35, the term is used in the context of nations warring against each other. And so the employment of this term in chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis does not indicate some kind of subtle hostility. We're talking about a life and death reality between Satan and the woman for eternity. However, there's more than that. God continues. Secondly, he says, and between your offspring and her offspring. At this point, we need to understand what I and many others call seed theology. There's a biblical concept of, of seed theology, and we want to be aware of this term as we work our way through the book of Genesis. It's an imp important term in Genesis, as well as the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, or the Pentateuch. And the term is really important for Christian theology overall. As a matter of fact, the NET Bible study, note 41, says this, speaking of this term, the promise of seed in the books of Moses and the rest of the Old Testament is a developing motif of anticipatory hope. After referring to humanity here, in subsequent context, it refers to Israel, which would be Abraham's seed, the Davidic line, and to the Messiah. And so we should be aware of this term as we study our Bibles, beloved. The Hebrew noun is zerah. And it's a term that can be translated as seed or offspring or descendant or descendants. And the Hebrew's term, the, the way it appears in the text, is the same whether it is meant to be singular or plural. The word itself can refer to one or to many. It can refer to an individual or a collective group. And there are many times when the term may imply both a collective reality and an individual reality. Therefore, it's the context of the word itself and the surrounding words that will help us to identify what the word means. Specifically, pronouns and verbs related to the noun determine if the noun is meant to refer to a specific seed or to a collective seed, if you will, with many individuals. For example, let's think through this in English for a moment. If I were to say, I love my offspring, 
You could take that to mean that I love my children, or you could take that to mean that I love a particular offspring of mine, such that you might ask, which one? And I wouldn't answer you. (laughs) I may then reply something like this. I love all my offspring, but I'm thinking of one particularly right now. And so the, the word itself needs some help. I can make a statement like that, and you might ask yourself, well, what what exactly does he mean by that? And so you can see how the term needs aid from the surrounding terms around it in its near context to specify its meaning. Of course, this is how language often works. And up to this point in our text, we are simply told that there will be hostility between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And as we work our way through our Bibles... As we work our way through the book of Genesis and the rest of the Bible, we do indeed see that there is a godly line of descendants through Adam to Seth and then Noah and then Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and then David and ultimately to Christ, such such that Christ is able to identify some as children of Satan and some as children of God in John chapter 8. This is one of the many reasons why we can't just skip over the genealogies that we find in the Old Testament. They're really important for us to understand and see the godly line. So, it's true. It's true that there's a war between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman in a collective sense, but there is more to it than that. So thus far we see enmity between the serpent and the woman as the first spiritual ramification of Satan's sin. The second spiritual ramification is hostility between each of their offspring. And the storyline, as we just talked about, the storyline of the Bible corroborates the idea that there is a broad hostility between the individuals and their respective offspring. However, the third ramification of Satan's sin specifies that there is a specific seed within the collective seed of the woman who will be victorious over the serpent. And beloved, this is God's gracious promise. God concludes his address to the serpent with these words. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Some have translated this portion of verse 15 as he will crush your head even though you attack his heel or he will attack your head as you attack his heel. The point is, is that the offspring of the woman would receive a damaging strike by the serpent. However, the offspring of the woman would have the upper hand to deliver a deadly strike to the serpent. That's the point. And what a concluding remark this is. In the midst of sin, I mean, I don't know about you guys, I can get tired about listening to sermon after sermon on sin, sin, sins. I know I'm a sinner. I have to see myself every day in the mirror. I don't like myself sometimes. I need God's grace each and every day. In the midst of that context, God begins to offer hope, a promise. What a concluding remark. And many refer to this portion of this verse as the first gospel, the proto-euangelion. It's in the midst of the sin of Satan, in the midst of the sin of man, that God declares a promise that indicates that an offspring of the woman will be victorious over the serpent. 
But this isn't the woman's offspring in general. Get this. The pronoun is singular. The verb form is singular, which allows for this seed to refer to a specific seed, a specific individual within the woman's progeny who would fatally strike Satan, even though this individual will be seriously struck by Satan himself. And time does not permit us to trace the Old Testament trail that leads to the birth of Christ in the New Testament, but certainly this text does foretell of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I do want to look at three texts in the New Testament. It is, it is Jesus Christ, the singular seed of the woman who did and will defeat Satan once and for all. Can I get an amen to that? Look at Galatians chapter 3 for just a moment. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul, referring to Genesis 22, is going to do some exegesis for us and shows us how important word forms and singular and plural numbers are. He says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Look what Paul says here. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 2. In Hebrews chapter 2, we have this reality of the author of the Hebrews communicating to Jews that Christ is better than Mosaic law and he's superior over the law of Moses and angels. And in chapter 2, he quotes Psalm 8. Speaking of mankind here, beginning in verse 7, he said, You made him for a little while lower than the angels or God. You have crowned him with glory and honor. So he's speaking of mankind here. Verse 8, putting everything in subjection under his feet. That sounds a lot like Genesis 1, right? That we are to be fruitful and multiply and subdue and rule the earth. So he's picking up on that. But then listen to what the author says. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his man's control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to mankind or to him. Here we go, verse 9. What do we see? But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Now he's going to specify it, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because the suffering of death, so that by grace, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Let's work our way down through verse 15 because it's going to connect the dots for, it, for us. It says, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am, I and the children God has given me. Look here at verse 14. 
Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things. Why? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Hebrews chapter 2 connects the dots for it's Christ who was the promised seed who would crush the head of the serpent. One more text I want to look at is Roman chapter 16. The text that we just looked at in Hebrews 2 tells us that Satan is currently defeated in principle through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a text in Romans chapter 16. This would be after the crucifixion. This would be after the resurrection. And Paul says this in verse 20 of Romans 16. The God of peace will soon crush, crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This speaks of a future time when Satan will finally and fully be defeated. This is all through the promised seed that we see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And I simply want to invite you to hope for the very first time or to continue in hoping Jesus the snake crusher, the serpent crusher. For God has graciously promised the defeat of Satan, the defeat of sin, and the feet of death in him and in him alone. This is God's gracious promise. And this brings us to God's gracious instruction in verse 16 back in Genesis 3. It says, To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. At this point, God turns to address the woman after having addressed the serpent. And note that the same pattern follows. There are first physical and then spiritual ramifications conveyed as a result of her sin. Physically speaking, the Hebrew indicates that both her pain in pregnancy and her pain in birthing children will greatly increase. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew is very strong to communicate the intensification of this pain. Remember back in Genesis 1, verse 28, God does what? God blesses the man and the woman, and after he blesses them, he tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. From that line, we see that God blesses, which enables man and woman to have offspring. I want us to marvel at this. That in the midst of man's sin, the gracious blessing of childbearing is not removed. God doesn't change his plan. He will continue and work out his plans and purposes communicated in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. However, Every woman who has experienced pregnancy and or the birth of a child has the opportunity to be reminded of the sin that occurred in paradise. And we can look at that many different ways. 
any of us who have not experienced that, males, but who have been in the room when their wives have maybe experienced that, there's a lot of way to look at that in that moment. I remember, well, I'm not going to go there. I just remember a lot, and it's gnarly, right? It's gnarly. So we can look at it that way. It's terrible, it's gnarly, it's all this, that, and the other. We can also realize that this intensity in bearing children can serve as an impetus to call upon the name of the Lord. call upon the name of the Lord in the midst of pregnancy, in the midst of labor, in the midst of delivery. So there are physical ramifications. Spiritually speaking, God says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And really, the ESV does a little bit of interpretation of this verse for us here. A very literal wooden translation of the Hebrew would be something like this, and toward or against or for your husband, your desire, and the way we supply the existing verb will be. And so very, uh, very wooden, and toward or against your husband, your desire. That's what the Hebrew says. And so now it's up to us, with the help of the Holy Spirit and the counsel of God's word and the history of interpretation, to determine what it means for woman's desire to be toward her husband in this verse. The Hebrew term translated desire is only used two other times in the Hebrew Bible. The word is used in Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, chapter 7, in a romantic context. And therefore, some have concluded that the, the term refers to a wife's sexual desire for her husband. However, this interpretation does not really help us to make much sense of the rest of the verse. It would be something like this. Your sexual desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Huh? That doesn't make much sense, right? Moreover, with God's bless, blessed command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth that we saw in Genesis 1, and with Adam's reaction to his wife, remember when he said, wow, woo, we, now that's what I'm talking about. He was in all of this wife, we should conclude that sexual desire between husband and wife was a God-given reality at creation. Amen? So this verse does not speak of sexual desire. The only other place that this term is used is in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. Let's turn there for a moment. Context is Cain and Abel. The Lord accepts Abel's offering. He does not accept Cain's offering. And the Lord is now counseling Cain. Cain's angry. The Lord says, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? And then he gives him this counsel. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. You must rule over it. Very similar idea here. So Moses uses the same term in chapter 3, verse 16, as he does in chapter 4, verse 7. In chapter 4, verse 7, the sin principle is depicted as having an urge or having a yearning to dominate Cain. The same kind of thing is going on in our text back in chapter 3, verse 16. The woman will have an urge to dominate or to control her husband, but the husband will rule over her. 
Here, God introduces for the very first time a, a real novel struggle to biblical marriage. Prior to this, the sin, prior to the, the sin of man, both male and female did what? They accepted their God-given roles and they accepted their God-given responsibilities in the context of marriage. The man was the head of his wife and the wife was the helper of her husband and they delighted and they rejoiced in those roles and responsibilities. But now, as a result of sin, a conflict between wife and husband ensued. The wife would desire to control her husband, but the husband would exert dominance over his wife, and a battle goes forward. This is the reality of marriage in human society. We experience it. We feel it even as Christians. And if we rightly understand marriage before the fall and marriage after the fall, then this judgment is what makes the commands concerning marriage in the New Testament all the more remarkable. This is the reality, but now Christians are called to do what? Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, lay down your lives for your wives. Husbands, don't be harsh with your wives. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. God understands the judgment that he placed, and he calls us and enables us to love and sacrificially lead our wives. Wives, submit to and respect and honor your husbands. If we don't rightly understand Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, then those commands have little meaning in the New Testament. You're called to honor God in the way that God desires and calls you and created you to honor him in the context of marriage. And this is God's gracious instruction. It's that he communicates the difficulties of pregnancy and birthing and controlling desires so that we might be aware of these difficulties and do what? Turn to him in the midst of our sin. A gracious promise gracious instruction. Now look at God's gracious curse in verses 17 through 19. Once again, the text reads, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curses the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread to return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. At this point, God turns to address the man. He's addressed the serpent. He's addressed the woman. And now he turns to man. And first we see the reason, then we see the result. The reason first and then the result. The reason is this, because you listen to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. That's the reason for the result. Now, brother husbands, we have to be careful here. Don't take this verse out of context. Don't misinterpret this verse. This is what I don't want to hear at this church. Um, you know, Pastor Kenny, I was in the Word early in the morning and I was studying, and uh, I was actually studying Genesis chapter 3, and I realized, as the Spirit was teaching me, 
that Adam really got into some trouble when he listened to his wife. And so therefore, I've decided to apply the word of God in my life, and I am no longer listening to my wife. No, that, that, that's bad. That's called bad Bible interpretation. I don't want to hear that. I'll be honest with you. Funny, not funny. Some of you need to repent because that's what you're doing right now. We understand that we're the heads of our households. But we also understand that we need help, amen? And that God has graciously given us our wives to help us, a la Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. So brothers, this is what we do. We, we listen to our wives and we consider what our wives have to say and then we lead according to the word of God. And if you've got a good godly wife, she's going to help you with her words to more deeply consider what God would say. Listen, consider, and lead, brothers. But I digress. What does this phrase mean? What does this phrase mean? The idea behind the Hebrew idiom listen to the voice of, has less to do with hearing and more to do with heeding or obeying. In other words, because you obeyed your wife and disobeyed me, is what God is saying. A wife is a gift from God, and so therefore she should never be honored or adored or cherished or submitted to over against God and what he has said. That's called folly. Thanks for this great gift. I'm not going to honor you, but I'm going to serve the gift as if she were an idol. How are you going to honor the gift and not honor the gift giver? And that's really what's so audacious about what's going on here. Adam was passive when he should have been active, which led to him obeying his woman rather than God. And for that reason, this is the result. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Pretty much the ground is cursed. And in pain you'll eat of it. You'll gather the vegetation, you'll gather the, the grain to make bread, and it will be hard, laborious effort. The Hebrew term translated pain is only used three times in the Old Testament. We saw it earlier in verse 16 when it talked about the woman and pain, you will bear children. And so we see that as a result of sin, both man and woman will experience painful toil as a consequence, as a result. Remember on day three of creation that the vegetation was created. Look back at chapter one, verses 11 and 12. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, vegetation plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth did what? It brought forth vegetation, plant yielding seed according to their kinds, and tree, trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Later on in the very same chapter, we're told that we get to eat this stuff. 
Chapter 1, verse 29, And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with its seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. After that, we're told that man himself was formed from the ground and that he was created to work the ground of Eden to cultivate vegetation. Chapter 2, verse 5, No bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then, verse 7, the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he formed. The picture that we get from these verses is that God created lush, bountiful, plentiful, beautiful place that would continuously offer harvest after harvest after harvest, that the ground and the vegetation would cooperate with man, that there would be a harmonious creation wherein man would joyfully flourish. That's the picture that we get. But that would no longer be the case. The ground would bring forth thorns and thistles to make difficult work for the man. It would be difficult to harvest the, the fruit, the vegetation, the grain. More than that, Romans chapter 8, verse 22, tells us that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. As a result of sin, all of creation is experiencing its consequences. So we know that from the created order itself, via the word of God, there's no experience that we've had on this earth that isn't tainted by sin and its consequences. Man will work, and it will be hard work until when? To return to the ground. This is such a humbling verse. Such a humbling verse. We think too highly of ourselves, brothers and sisters. When I was a kid, it was, uh, what, you think you all that in a bag of chips? That's what we used to say. We just, we just think we're fresh and special, and we're not. We're not. We're creatures made out of dust, and God in his grace just breathes the breath of life into us and grants us the gift of life, and he says, serve me and love me and honor me, and we say, no. Just utter foolishness. And then he opens our eyes, and we behold Christ, and we say, wow, I'm not all that in a bag of chips. Christ is far more exceedingly great than I could ever imagine. I will come to him, and I will humble myself before him, and I will serve him. And then the very next day, we think we're all that in a bag of chips again. We need God's grace. We need God's grace. And this verse in invites us to humbly plea with God for his grace. Hard work until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God took man out of the ground. God told him, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. He ate it and immediately incurred 
spiritual death, that is separation from God, and will suffer physical death. Man's return to the ground upon death really humbles us and reminds us that he is God and that we are not. That we depend entirely upon him. Let me give you another Bible study note from the Net Bible. Note 57 says, the theme of mankind's mortality is critical here in view of the temptation to be like God. Man will labor painfully to provide food, obviously not enjoying the bounty that creation promised. In place of the abundance of the orchid's fruit trees, thorns and thistles will grow. Man will have to work the soil so that it will produce the grain to make bread. This will continue until he returns to the soil from which he was taken. In spite of the dreams of immortality and divinity, man is but dust and will return to dust. So much for his pride. We need to be warned by this verse and be humble before our great God. And you're wondering to yourself right now, Kenny, you said this is God's gracious curse, but I'm not seeing much grace. I see a lot of terrible, horrible things. And you're right, judgment is horrible. The, the judgment of God is terrible, yet a righteous thing. But I want us to note the placement of this curse. In verse 14, the Lord God looks at the serpent and he exclaimed, Cursed are you. But in our passage, God looks not upon man and says, cursed are you, but upon the ground that man will work and says, it is cursed. That's a gracious curse, beloved. A gracious curse. It is all the more gracious when we consider the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, will himself be cursed in the stead of those who are his. Galatians 3, verses 13 and 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Dear friend, dear friend, if you're not trusting this one that was cursed instead of sinners, I invite you to behold him and to look to him and to plead before him that you are a guilty sinner and that you see his grace that the Lord Jesus Christ was cursed instead of sinners like you and I. Turn to him, trust him, behold him, believe him, and praise God for his gracious curse. This brings us to God's gracious fulfillment in verse 20. Verse 20 reads, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. So now we have the narrator, the author Moses, giving us some added details. Eve means living or life giver or living one in Hebrew. And the text says that she was the mother of all living. If we believe God's word, then we throw away 
I want to call it garbage. I think I will call it garbage because it is garbage. All the garbage that says, no, there, there's a whole bunch of people that were there and this is just a snippet or all the evolutionary stuff. No, God created a man and a woman and that man and that woman are our first parents. The text substantiates that God created one man and one woman and that through them all other living persons came. The text also uniquely I just, God's word is so great. We just heard all death and sin, and, but, but it encouraged us, it invites us to consider the reality and the certainty of life in the context of death. Certainly there will be death, but there will be life. Moses tells us, look what Adam named his wife. The one who ate and God told us, surely you'll die if you eat of the tree. He named his wife Living, the life giver. There is a hint here that there will be a gracious fulfillment of Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, that God will continue to enable man to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. But furthermore, that in and through Christ, man will subdue the earth and have dominion over the earth, a la Revelation 21 and 22. What God gave for man to do in Genesis 1, man will do it, namely through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will subdue and rule and have dominion over the new heavens and the new earth, all because of Christ. In time, God begins to graciously fulfill his plans and his purposes through mankind despite man's sin. And this brings us to God's gracious clothing. God's gracious clothing, verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Remember in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, after man had sinned, the text says, then the eyes of both were open, Adam and Eve opened their eyes, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is, this is, this is us, guys. Oops, we messed up. Let's try to make it right. Oops, we messed up. I don't like the consequences of that sin. Let's try to make it right. Man, by his own efforts, tried to remedy the consequences of sin in chapter 3, verse 7, by sewing fig leaves together and covering themselves. How many of you know that mere human efforts will never account for sin and her consequences? Therefore, in verse 21, we see the Lord God himself step in on behalf of man to make garments, not of leaves, but of skin. And this alludes to the reality of sacrifice, that an animal was put to death as a result of human sin. And from that animal, the Lord God made garments of skins. God graciously clothed and he graciously covered the man and his wife after they had sinned and after they felt shame. But beloved, this allusion to sacrifices 
but a foreshadowing of the sacrifices that the nation of Israel would offer to God for their sins. And even though these sacrifices were commanded by God himself, we needed something more than animal sacrifices and garments of skin to cover us. Ultimately, it is the sacrifice of the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, that you and I need, the second person of the triune God, the one through whom all things were created and all things exist. He assumed a human nature, born as a baby in that godly line. He lived a perfect life, perfectly righteous in every way. He took the curse upon himself on that tree, and he sacrificed himself on that cross. He was buried, and he rose, and he ascended on high, where he is now, seated at the right hand of God, and from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. And even now, even now, he says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and to anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal. And then he declares, come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The book of Genesis, we see early on that we're supposed to work and rest with God. In Genesis chapter 3, we see that severely disrupted. But the Lord Jesus Christ says, I put in the work and I offer the rest. Come to me, all you who are weary and heaven laden. And in me, you'll find rest. Oh, that you would come to Christ if you know him not that you would be clothed in his righteousness, that you would come and forsake your sin, that you would come and be forgiven, that you would come and for the very first time truly live. Beloved, see God's grace in our text this morning. See his gracious promise. See his gracious instruction. See his gracious curse. See his gracious fulfillment. See his gracious clothing. See his grace and experience that grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is by grace through faith in Christ Jesus alone that we are saved. Father, I pray that you would bless us, that we might see your grace even as you respond and judge our sin. Lord, I pray that you would make this personal for us. There are some Christians here who at times forget your enabling grace, your satisfying grace that serves as a motivation and encouragement for us to forsake our sin afresh and to turn to you and to live for you. Help my dear brothers and sisters now to embrace and experience your grace afresh. And Lord, there are some in our midst who have not yet tasted your amazing grace. My prayer is that they would even now swallow and ingest that grace and be born again from above that they might see themselves as sinner, but more than that, 
and they would see the seed of the woman who has overcome sin. Do what you do best, O Lord. Honor your word in the hearts of your people. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.